I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Will you let us know when you're recording? I've literally been recording for a while, so. <laughs> Grr. <laughs> that whole silence part. JJ is at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> I know, but I switched to the outline so I didn't see it. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, okay. Welcome everybody. Stop it. Okay. Everything's Starting fine. off great. Welcome everybody to the third episode of the second season of Introvets Podcast. Yay. Today we have a special guest with us. Dr. Plunkett is a boarded small animal surgical specialist, entrepreneur, and practice owner. She's originally from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. She went to veterinary school at Kansas State and then completed actually two internships, a rotating internship and a surgical internship at Metropolitan Veterinary Hospital in Ohio before moving on to her residency at Auburn. I actually met Dr. Plunkett for the first time at Auburn. I was a senior veterinary student and she was doing her residency. Following residency, she was an associate surgeon at Veterinary Surgery Center in Oklahoma City for several years. She also served as a locum surgeon in Kansas, Virginia, and Kentucky before moving back to Alabama and establishing Alabama Veterinary Surgical Services, which was a traveling surgical service in North Alabama. In 2017, Dr. Plunkett teamed up with her colleague, Dr. Harriman, to open Huntsville Veterinary Specialists and Emergency. And now that practice has two full-time surgeons, a neurologist, provides ER services, and also hosts traveling specialists, including a dermatologist. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Plunkett. Hey, how are you guys? So glad to be here. We're good. <laughs> We're good. This, is, this has been fun already. I know. <laughs> So, Dr. P., uh, when did you decide to pursue surgery as a specialty? I think, I mean, I can't remember, you know, the exact moment, but I, once I actually decided to go to veterinary school because I was pretty much against it when I was younger. And my dad um, would always say, you should be a veterinarian. You should be a veterinarian because I loved animals. And the only reference point I had for that was our primary care veterinarian and the only reference point I had for what she did was what we took our pets in for, which was like vaccinations and doing an enema on my pet mouse at one point. <laughs> nice. She was just in a really small practice and it just didn't appeal to me. But so I finally decided to go to vet school. And then I think it was um, really during freshman anatomy that I thought surgery was something that I really wanted to do just because of all the pieces and you they all work together and you put them back together when they're broken. And it was just very um, tangible. I think medicine to me is a complete intangible, like it's so beyond me. I think it's fascinating, but I, I don't feel like I'm smart enough. I need like the puzzle pieces, you know, like how a toddler needs like the big crayons and like the giant <laughs> puzzle pieces instead of like, I'm not doing a thousand piece puzzle. I'm doing like the dinosaur on the floor, 13 piece oh. puzzle. And I feel like that's surgery. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's very tangible, and that's that's what I like about it. I mean, I do surgery, and when I was younger, I was a lot more fearless about it than I am now, I'll be honest. I totally agree. I was too, yeah. And now, I'm, uh, the, <laughs> the older I get, the more I realize, like, I'm going to do what now? Like, <laughs> that seems crazy. 
Yeah, I feel like the more I learn, the less brave I get, well, actually. <laughs> that makes sense, Dr. Plunkett. I think it's kind of counterintuitive, but in a way, it it I understand it. <laughs> well, the the caution that you develop from experience, I think, yes. you know, because um, oh, we've all had everybody, every veterinarian in the whole world has had cases that didn't go as well as they had hoped. I yeah, mean, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And every time you um have one of those, then you learn some things. And I think the more that you learn, like when you're young, there's uh things that you don't know to be nervous about. <laughs> yeah, I think you just think everything goes how it says in the textbook. Right. And that is not accurate. <laughs> that is completely inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Inaccurate. Yeah, I have a great example of that. It was just a big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so we had this um five-year-old female that came in. The um, referring veterinarian contacted us, said, I have a closed pyometra. Um, can you take this case? And we were like, yeah, sure. So the dog had been sick for four to five days, not eating. I mean, a 2.4 kg palm, so very small. So she came in. She was pretty bright and alert. They had already done blood work. She was mildly azotemic. Um, got a catheter in her and took her to surgery. Her uterus had actually ruptured. Yeah. So she had an open, I mean, a... <laughs> In a way, an open pile. <laughs> an intra-abdominal open. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. The, the pressure was kind. no longer building Yikes. up. Thumbs so down. out of this, um, you know, tiny little dog, we got nasty pus, which, side note, apparently smelt really badly, but I couldn't smell it because I've had COVID recently. Oh, no. So I was like, oh, well, thanks for telling me that it stinks. <laughs> so did surgery, like, completely uneventful. Um, flushed her abdomen really well. We started her on unison and I guess it was Batril intraoperatively, um, uneventful recovery, like everything's normal. So the next day I come in and she is, um, completely quadriparetic, um, painful in her neck and her back and like you can't touch her. She's so painful. So, and then our neurologic signs kind of changed a little bit. And then um, she aspirated and got pneumonia. This is all within like a 12-hour period. Mm-hmm. Yikes. And then that night, one of the nurses was talking to the owners, giving them an update because she had crackles on her chest and we did rads and now she has aspiration pneumonia. And um, I said, okay, if they want to move forward, do some blood work. So we do blood work. Now she's in fulminant acute renal failure. Like what? phosphorus of 16. Um, I don't think the creatinine red. Crazy. And then she died later that night. So wow. this is a pio that came in pretty much BAR. I mean, quiet, but BAR. Normal mentation. And then is dead like 36 hours later. Which obviously the acute renal failure wasn't that surprising, but the neurologic signs, I was like, did you, like, did you throw a weird E. coli endotoxin clot to your spinal cord? Like what happened here? And she was neutropenic when she came in. So it was, it was a good case of something happening that is completely unexpected. Yeah. That's a, that's a scary story. (laughs) That is, yeah. yeah. I mean, she's very five. Up, is yeah. very upsetting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah. You, you always run into things that are not how you would think. Mm-hmm. I've seen um animals with more vessels than they're supposed to have. Oh, sure. 
I haven't seen a dog yet or a cat yet that has both sets of sex organs, but my people that do spay neuter talk about it all the time. Like they see it <laughs> commonly, like all the time, all well, the time. Or cats was with two different uteruses. Mm-hmm. There was the uterus coming out of the boob. What was the other? Was like a hernia. <laughs> Yeah, one, and I don't think that if this owner heard this, I don't think that they would be upset. So I'm going to talk about it, but um, I'm going to change some of the history information just so it's not easily recognizable. So we'll just say <laughs> a small breed dog with unknown medical history came in and it had a mass in its inguinal area. And they don't know how long it's been there, but they've had the dog for a few months and it's been there at least that whole time. And they want to know about having it removed at the time that she's spayed because she's unspayed. And so I look at the mass and it's large compared to the size of this dog and I'm nervous about it. So we did some, you know, sampling. I even put the ultrasound on it just to make sure that I didn't think it was a hernia because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's in the inguinal area, you know, and if this was a hernia, it was going to be the biggest damn hernia that I had (laughs) ever seen in a small dog. And, you know, on ultrasound, it was like, well, I I don't see anything that looks like like an intestinal loop or anything. You know, it was kind of hard to tell. So we aspirated the mass and it came back um, kind of nonspecific inflammation. And so I talked with the surgeon uh, and was like, I got this case. It's weird. Like, I don't feel comfortable about it, but they won't go to the surgeon because of cost. So help, I don't know what to do. And he was like, why don't you do an incisional biopsy? And I was like, that's a damn good idea. Like, yeah. let's fucking do that. Yeah, like, duh. So sometimes it just helps me to talk it out with someone. And even if they're like, here's an obvious answer, then I'm like, oh. Yeah, <laughs> totally. think of that one. So uh, we went in and uh, JJ was working with me on that case. And we're in surgery. And the p- the plan is going to be to take the incisional biopsy first and make sure that the dog is stable and everything because it was an older dog. And then if the dog is stable, then we're going to change surgical packs and everything and go to do the spay. So that was the plan. I go in to do a biopsy. (laughs) And I'm like, huh, this looks weird. This looks weird. I don't know what, JJ, I don't know what this is. (laughs) So it was like, um... (laughs) I thought, like, is this like a pseudo capsule around this mass? Like, what is going on? So I gently incised it, you know, I was exploring like really tentatively. And all of a sudden, I look down and something goes flop out onto the drape. And it, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> this looks like a uterus. <laughs> and JJ was like, it can't be the uterus. And I was like, it can't be. And, but I'm looking, I'm like, JJ, this is a uterus. Like, it looks like a uterus. So I even had one of my colleagues come in and was like, all right, am I crazy? Y'all, this looks like a uterus. And the colleague was like, I think it is a uterus. <laughs> and so I went back up. We, we um, you know, changed everything, changed the way we were draped, scrubbed again, went into the abdomen. And it was the damn uterus. <laughs> so the uterus at some point had gone through um, an inguinal hernia mm-hmm. and it's just stayed out there and... The suspensory ligament had just gotten so long over time. Um, the suspensory ligament was like three or four inches long. And the, the ovary, the only thing that was preventing the ovary from slipping through was just like the, I guess, diameter of it or whatever. Uh-huh. It was the craziest thing I have ever seen. 
And so then, so I spayed the dog and I called the owner in like the surgical seat and I was like, so good news, <laughs> not a mess. Weird news. It was the uterus somehow. And I don't know. And I've it never was trying to before. escape. It I want to like, be spayed. We got to get out of here. I want to be spayed. So thank God that dog didn't get pregnant. Yeah. Or a uh, Pio or something. Cause what, like what, what would happen? They would have uh, anyway had to have uh, acted sooner. Closing that hernia was so hard. And I don't like inguinal hernias. If I'd have known for sure it was an inguinal hernia, I would have referred it because those in small dogs are like nightmares. Yeah, no. Because they're all, they're always wanting to dehiss, you know, all the time. Oh, yeah. They were like, oh, recur, recur. I'm like, stupid. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I, I don't have any follow up on that case, unfortunately. I like am so curious. Sometimes I just want to call the owner and be like, how did that go? Like, did that recur? Like, what? Because it was so much. The, um, what do you call, Dr. Plunkett, the uh, the the sack that the hernia sits in? It's just the hernial sack. Hernial mm-hmm. sack. Um, it was so big. Like, it was the biggest thing. And so even though I, like, resected a crap ton of it, there was still so much tissue in that area that was still just, like, because everything was so hyperplastic. Mm-hmm. And so then when the dog would come in for rechecks, I would palpate it and I'd be like, I think I closed this. Is this a soft tissue structure? Is it a hernia redeveloping? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Anyway, after that, I jumped on Vin and, and looked for it. And there was like one post about it with like over. It was like a post from like 1999. This happened to me. And then every few years, someone else would reply and be like, this happened to me today. And it was just like <laughs> 10 or 12 people updating the posts for, you know, t- 20 years yeah. being like, I finally had this happen. I've actually seen it once before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was crazy. like, I added to it. I was like, hell yeah. I had it happen. <laughs> anyway, JJ, that that was an interesting one. Yeah. That was the day that you spayed a boob. I did. <laughs> boob spay. Anyway. Is that going to be the name of the episode? Boob spay? Probably. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Probably so. I mean, how do you get away from that? I don't I don't know. So, Dr. Plunkett, as a surgeon, I know you pretty much do everything from soft tissue surgery to orthopedics. Uh, but do you have any special interests or types of cases that you especially enjoy? To be 100% honest, it, it kind of depends on my mood. Yeah. It just, it changes a lot. Um, but I really... I still enjoy surgical oncology. That was kind of my focus initially coming out of school. I spent a lot of out of school, out of my residency. I spent a lot of time with the um, oncology team at Auburn mm-hmm. and went to their journal club and went to their histo rounds and all this stuff. And it was just so cool having the medical oncologist there and the radiation oncologist and the surgical oncologist. And you could just really get like a whole well-rounded thing. And I think as I've gotten away from having those resources like readily at hand. I've it, and having done some very involved cases, like we said earlier, I'm just not as brave as I used to be because I just <laughs> sure. don't do it as often as I used to. Um, some of the recon cases, the reconstruction cases that I did in Oklahoma, I I would be so scared to do right now, like just massive body wall removals with reconstruction and not to mention the fact that they can take you know hours many 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 hours so i still enjoy sir junk i'm just a little um you know knowing that auburn and dr matz are not too far away and they have the medical oncologists and stuff and the radiation oncologists um if people are willing 
to go there. I feel like that's a more comprehensive way to approach certain um, masses. So um, aside from that, I've really um, started to enjoy fracture repair as I've learned to be um, more patient with myself because it's. I was talking about this with one of my technicians the other day. We were doing this um, bilateral fracture repair. It was a left ileal and a right femoral fracture. And so, of course, it was taking quite a while. And yeah. I made this comment about, it's so funny, because you write this surgery report, and it's like, a standard craniolateral incision was made, the fracture fragments were reduced, and it, like, it's like four sentences. Mm-hmm. It doesn't relate the fact that it took two hours to reduce that fracture, like, with all these different instruments, traction, people were sweating, you're, like, pulling on the leg. I mean, it's... It doesn't adequately um, convey what can go into fracture reduction. Um, it's just this nice quick surgery report. Like we put it together, we put a plate on, done, no problem. And that's not mm-hmm. what it is. <laughs> so, but I've just learned to be more patient with trying to get fractures reduced and knowing just kind of the nuances of fracture repair. There's, I, I didn't have as much orthopedic instruction during my residency as um, soft tissue or oncology. Yeah. So I came out not um, as well trained in that area. So I've kind of had to learn um, from other surgeons for sure. Sure. And then just by by trial and error. But um, obviously, like, really no two fractures are the same. There's always something to learn. So. That's something I really enjoy now. I have often thought that we need to be able to put, in addition to our surgical notes, like the personal cost to us. So like, (laughs) you know, uh, patient recovered successfully. Veterinarian and four technicians missed lunch and were emotionally traumatized. That's right. Period. Uh, (laughs) Status update. Went to the corner and cried, hugging their knees. (laughs) We're in radiology waiting for post-op rads praying on their knees. I mean, right. if we have to go yeah. back into this fracture, I'm going to, I literally told my technician, I'm going to gnaw my large toe off if I have to go back into this fracture. Like I mm-hmm. cannot do it. Yeah. Well, it helps yeah. me to know that other people feel that way, oh. especially that a surgical specialist sometimes feels that way. Oh, shoot. Because uh, JJ and I talk on the podcast a lot about how we both have problems with anxiety. and um. I kind of imagine everyone else in the world is a like more functional, complete, like um, complete's not the right word, like a more functional on it. I'm confident all the time. Nothing ever goes wrong for me sort of person than I am. And it's good oh. sometimes to have someone be yeah. like, that's not true. No. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you feel that way, just just call me. Okay, I will. (laughs) So many stories. And it's so funny because the first time I heard the subtitle to this podcast, I was like, oh, that is perfect. (laughs) Nothing describes me better, I think. I mean, sometimes it's not high functioning at all. Sometimes it's poorly functioning, anxious person. As my therapist would say, the definition of high functioning isn't like winning all the awards and succeeding in winning life or whatever. It's like, because I'll be like, ah, I haven't, like, I've been so irritating this week. Like, I haven't done anything. And she's like, but have you, though? Like, really? really? (laughs) She's like, so you're saying you laid in bed all week and didn't go to work? And I'm like, well, no, I went to work. And she's like, (laughs) okay, so you haven't, like, 
gone shopping and cooked meals for yourself? Well, yeah, I did that. And she's like, okay. So, like, um, <laughs> she, like, makes me list all the ways that I am functional. I have to be like, fine. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah, the functioning part is uh, like, yeah. it's questionable some days. I'm just sitting in the car after lunch. I'm like, do I have to go back? Really? Yeah. Can I just be alone? Can I just not deal with people? If I just yeah. drove away, would anyone miss me? Maybe yeah. a little, but not much. Uh, I can talk myself out of this. <laughs> the dealing with people, uh, you know, uh, in veterinary school, they were always like, you know, there's a person on the other end of that leash and that sort of thing. Um, Which I was like, duh, I know that, yeah. you know, or whatever. Yeah. What they need to say is like, they're an asshole. <laughs> the people that own animals will emotionally traumatize you on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. Just go ahead and get ready. That Get ready for the emotional trauma. <laughs> yeah, the anxiety isn't whether or not the fracture is going to heal most of the time mm -hmm. or the if the cancer is going to come back or whatever. I can tell people like, like this is probably going to return. This should be okay based on this. And everything's kind of, you know, everything's tentative because it's biology. You have no control. Sure. Yeah. But when it comes to, to the people, like, that's very consistent. They are... Mm -hmm not going to understand what you say. Oh my gosh, I had this client last week. I almost fired her. I was real close to firing her. We're going to have to cut this part out. I know, I know, I know, I know, okay. I know. I, but um, I'm trying, I'm trying to get back to where we were. But the emotional trauma, I don't know how, how they can prepare you for that in veterinary school. I, I mean, it, <laughs> exposure therapy, you know, yeah. in veterinary school. Desensitization. Yeah, I mean, yeah, install a therapist. I mean, I think and that's what they're moving to, which I was mm -hmm. really happy to hear because it's necessary. But you're absolutely right. You can tell people, you can prepare them, you can have conversations, spend hours in consultation, send them an email follow-up outlining all the shit you just said, have them sign a form that says the shit that you just said, and still they will be like, I didn't know that. And I'm like, how did you not know that? <laughs> yeah. How? I've told you 15 times and you signed a form that said it. Well, I don't know what I'm signing. And I'm just like, <laughs> okay. If you can't read, that's not my problem. You know, it's a grief response that people have. Yeah. And they, they really want to try to find someone to blame. But anyway, yes, the, <laughs> the most difficult part about practicing for me is dealing with the people. And it's not that I'm like, oh, I'm an introvert. I hate people. It's that right. the amount of people that are unpleasant is so high. And um, like uh, sometimes we'll be like, man, that client was really, really great. And then the other person will be like, what did they do? And I'm like, uh, they didn't scream at me. Yeah, they're just <laughs> nice and, uh, and trusting. The baseline is sad. <laughs> they had an average, just normal interaction yeah. with me without... <laughs> They were not a dick to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And even nice people, it's like probably mm -hmm. the, I'm not going to say the worst part, but the hardest part of my job is calling people after surgery. Even mm -hmm. if things went great. It's just, I don't like talking on the phone. It's, it's just an awkward interaction for me. I don't know why. I'm just exhausted yeah. from surgery and I'm like, everything went fine. And, mo and yeah. most people are great. They're like, Great, thank you for letting me know. When can we expect an update? And it's, I do, I, I feel like a lot of it I bring upon myself. But <laughs> anyway, it's all right. Okay, so you mentioned how much you enjoy doing fracture repair now. So let's talk about that for a moment. 
Um, so the thing that pet owners always want to know is, will this heal if we don't do surgery? <laughs> and are there some general guidelines to help general practitioners decide whether conservative care should be offered? Most things will heal. They will heal. Is the dog going to be very functional is the question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, that is what it is. Um, but a lot of things that contribute to whether or not they'll heal slash will they heal in an appropriate manner, um, there's, a, there's a lot of different factors there. I think the biggest one is the age of the patient. So obviously an eight-week-old puppy is going to heal a lot faster than an eight-year-old dog. They're growing, and so they're they just have a um, tendency to heal very, very quickly, which can be great in some ways and can make things very difficult in others. Because if it does end up needing surgery and it's already been two weeks, you basically have to re-break the bone. Because um, mm. if, if it's healed in the wrong place, like there will be so much scar tissue there. Compliance of owners is is a huge thing and it, that I guess that's part of maybe the art of veterinary medicine is is learning to feel people out some of them will flat out tell you like there's no way we can do that we can't keep our dog in a crate for eight weeks and I if someone flat out tells me that I was like well then you just need to amputate like this is not worth the investment financial investment that it's going to cost to fix this fracture the activity of the patient, of course, so if it's um, a two-year-old Border Collie versus a 12-year-old Great Dane, like you'd be fortunate to have a 12-year-old Great Dane, and it'd probably be <laughs> pathologic, but anyway, we're, we'll leave that behind, um, has a lot to do with it as well. But, but we do, to combat those two things, the activity of the patient and the compliance of the owners, we send home a good amount of sedatives, you know, just to take the edge off, and that's... That's huge, but I'm very emphatic with people about um, the environment that the dog needs to be in, either post-operatively or if we're doing conservative management. Like I tell them, basically, if we're doing conservative management, you you still treat them like as if we fixed the fracture, and maybe even a little bit more delicately because it's not stabilized. So, uh, you know, the size of the crate, when they can come out of the crate, they have to be on a leash, all of those details. And then, of course, the displacement of the fracture fragments is really important. If it's a green stick fracture, so not even completely through all of the cortex um, in a puppy, then a lot of those will heal on their own as long as the dog doesn't go run and jump and bust it open. Um, And then I would say, so which bone it is, is it something that you can splint? So femoral fractures, very, very difficult to splint um, Mm -hmm. and obviously completely immobilizes many, many joints. And there's so much muscle around it. It's just really hard to conservatively stabilize a femur fracture. Whereas a radius ulna in a good sized dog, um, if it's not horribly displaced, usually, again, depending on the other factors, could potentially very successfully be um, conservatively managed unless it is a toy breed dog. So the Poodles and the Yorkies, and we see this on, I mean, kind of on a regular basis, but people will um, try to conservatively manage a radius ulna fracture in a toy breed dog. And they do not have, uh, proportionally speaking, the same blood supply to their distal front limbs. The back limbs are a little bit different, but to their front limbs as, say, um, a larger breed dog. And so they just don't, radius ulna in a small breed 
toy breed dog is not going to heal on its own. Yes. Yes, Dr. Greider. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question. When you're saying radius ulna, do you mean either or both? So like uh, a radius ulna fracture means both the radius and the ulna are fractured? Or does this apply even if it's only one or the other? Um, I rarely see one or the other. Sometimes the ulna will still be intact. In the small breed dogs, it's pretty much always both. But in the large breed dogs, it's pretty much always both. Really? (laughs) But uh, if the ulna is intact, then I think there is a better chance that the radius will heal. Because you kind of have a built-in Yeah, exactly. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I hadn't been doing the wrong thing. No, no, no. (laughs) It's possible that you don't see those very often because they are managed in general practice. So as a GP, um, whenever I see um, either an ulnar fracture with the radius intact or the radial fracture with the ulnus, ulnus, with the ulnus <laughs> intact, with the ulna intact, then I usually treat those conservatively and have had good success. If the so, radius is intact, shoot, you'd be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I've seen both of those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe anyway. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing the wrong thing. <laughs> no, and that's because that's a, also, I mean, being a distal extremity, it's a good, you can easily splint that, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to the humerus or the femur. Ugh. It's not, yeah, it's not going to go well. So, Dr. Plunkett, do you have any advice for veterinarians who are wanting to incorporate orthopedics, like orthopedic surgery, into their private practice? Yeah, I think um, it's very reasonable. In some regards, and in other regards, it, it just totally depends on finances, honestly. Yeah. Um, but I think just start simple. You kind of need to know your limitations, and I feel like if you're smart about it, then that's how you'll build confidence and really just all the little things that you don't necessarily think about. So where does the incision go? What muscle bellies are you going to run into? Where are the dissection planes there? What vessels are there? Like I would not start with a humeral fracture that would be a very poor decision because obviously there's there's nerves and vessels all over the place of the humeral fracture if someone was going to start with fracture repair i would say the tibia would by far be the easiest um and you want it to be diaphyseal so in the middle the long portion of the bone not near a joint and and ideally transverse and i say that a transverse fracture i say that because then there's load sharing between those two bones. So if it is a comminuted fracture, then you really need a much stronger repair because it's got to basically the repair has to um, hold the bone up while all those little pieces heal together. Whereas if there's load sharing between the two fragments, so transverse fracture being perpendicular to the long axis of the bone, then you just you just have that inherent stability and you're really just controlling rotation torsion shear and so starting simple um and then ideally you've already scrubbed in with someone and seen the approaches and been able to ask some questions about all those just the little details that you don't think about until you get in there um i think one thing probably holding some people back or i should say something that makes it so much easier is having the right instrumentation so mm-hmm. the right retractors, um, reduction forceps, an assistant is, you know, when I was in mobile practice, I didn't have an assistant for a lot of fractures and it made it so much harder. Now I'm completely spoiled and have someone <laughs> scrubbed in with me and someone who knows 
you know, what they're doing too. Like they kind of know yeah. what I'm going to do. And so that's, that's just a game changer um, to have an extra set of hands, sometimes two extra sets of hands, depending on the fractures. Um, <laughs> so just making things easier on yourself, at, you know, as you learn, there's a really good, and I meant to look up who the authors were, approaches book for orthopedics. And it, I mean, I, st I still refer to it. I referred to it the other day about where the incision goes, what structures you're going to hit. So that, that kind of goes back to the first comment I made. And then taking quality pre-op and post-op rads. So obviously when a fractures get referred to us, they pretty much always have radiographs that come with them because that's how the referring veterinarian found out it was fractured. But we, once the patient is under anesthesia, we almost always take more radiographs. And, it, and it's not because the ones we got necessarily weren't good, but that way the patient's completely relaxed. We can take those rads and I measure for a lot of my implants to just be more prepared. And then I'll often we'll take radiographs of the contralateral limb of the limb that is intact for measurement purposes as well. Like how long should this bone be when we're done putting it back together? And how far is this fracture from the joint? And so that kind of helps us with um, making sure we have enough screw purchase if, if we're plating, which is mostly what we do. And so taking those, those post-op rads um, is really important because that's how you get better. You see where you could have improved that repair and, and where you did well. And you might not have even known that you did well until you saw the post-op rads, which is always, <laughs> always kind of surprising. Um, it's, I wouldn't, depending on the fracture, you know, puppies are a little bit more difficult because you can't, you don't want to touch the growth plate. And so that's where the measurements really come in. How far is it from the joint to the growth plate? And then subtract that from the distance to the fracture site. Because if you cross a growth plate, you've kind of messed up things for that pup. Yeah. So I think it's very reasonable as long as you can make the appropriate investment in time and in instrumentation. I mean, the overhead for fractures is, until I owned um, my mobile practice, you know, I didn't realize the investment and it is it's significant i mean it is thousands and thousands of dollars of equipment instruments and inventory and and if you don't use them then you know you're kind of stuck so so i would say being committed to it is important as well but i i think it's i think it's it's reasonable you just also on top of that need to be comfortable once you get to that point charging appropriately Honestly, yeah. because again, you know, you write the surgery report, it takes 30 seconds to write the surgery report. It may have, may have taken four hours to do the surgery. And as a GP, I mean, from my mobile practice, I, you guys are busy. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not like, especially with a fracture with something, it's not like you scheduled this, right? So you have appointments scheduled probably for weeks out. And here's this fracture that you need to spend two, three hours between getting it prepped, not that you all would have a whole lot to do with that, but in the operating room, uh, it's probably not going to be real efficient in the beginning because you're not sure what you're doing. You're just kind of learning. And so I, I don't know that I've met that many general practitioners that could sacrifice that amount of time when they already have appointments scheduled. So, so those logistics, you know, would feed into it as well. I'm, I've met some general practitioners that are phenomenal surgeons and I, I don't know how they got that way, but I'm assuming they just, <laughs> you know, just like us, you learn. Practice. Yeah, you learn as you go.
Yeah, I agree with you that the time economics of general practice make major orthopedic surgery difficult. I mean, even soft tissue. Like, we get a lot of stuff just because people don't have time. Well, I'm, I, yes. Uh, so, and I'll kind of, I'm going to try not to talk too much about dentistry, okay? but <laughs> I see a lot of parallels between orthopedics and dentistry mm-hmm. in that there's kind of like an old way to do things that's maybe not the most advantageous to healing and decreasing morbidity long term. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we could say there are the more evolved techniques that take time, the instrumentation that you need. Um, and the things that you need to do for those types of procedures are so specific. The amount of time it takes is so long that you really kind of have to charge like a specialist to be able to justify mm-hmm. it. And so then you get the the conundrum of like, ethically, should I be charging specialist prices if I'm not a specialist? But it doesn't make economic sense. But, you know, and and so in my practice, I've had to like, really struggle with that sometimes. And so anyway, what I always do is I just try to educate the owner as best as possible and say, if this is something I feel comfortable doing, I could do this for you, but it's not going to be cheaper than seeing the specialist. And now we've got one right up the road. So what do you want to do? Before, (laughs) when people had to travel four or five hours, they were like, no, we don't want to travel four or five hours. But now that it's a 20 minute drive, and the cost is not going to be that different, you know, that a lot of times they'll go to see the specialist. Yeah. But um, I agree that it's similar to soft tissue surgery as well. So, like, if I'm going to recommend an exploratory laparotomy on your patient uh, or, or on your, say, on your cat, because it's always a cat, <laughs> with chronic GI signs, again, the time that it's going to take me to do that, to take the biopsies and things like that taking away any other types of wellness cases or sick animals that I would have been seeing. Right. So you like you lose the revenue for that. Yep. By the time you really ponder those economics, it's like, well, hell, it might, even if it's a high dollar um, case, it might actually lose the practice money right? in a way when you think about the opportunity cost and things. So right. I think that's, if you have a, a passion for those things, you should absolutely do them, strive to do them correctly. Yeah. Um, but um, but in modern practice, I think it is becoming more difficult economically to justify those things unless you just really, really love it. Yeah. And you can do enough of it to be good to charge and to schedule it. Exactly. You know, that's I think yes. that's the hard thing is, well, there's a lot of hard things. <laughs> I've done a lot of um, uh, well, again, not so much now, but when I was when I was a young veterinarian, I have done a lot of cowboy surgery in. um <laughs> Lunch or after hours. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> For sure. Because there was no other place to fit it yeah. in and they weren't going to drive to Auburn or to Tennessee or wherever. Mm-hmm. They, it was like, Doc, you're it. So I did it. And here's where the anxiety comes back in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't fault people that do that still have to do it that way because they're in a rural yeah. area or things like that. I mean, hey, I've done that. Yeah. But now that I'm in a position where I've got multiple specialists literally down the street it becomes a little bit more difficult for me to justify at least i at least always offer it yeah sometimes the owners are real specific about what they want but i think if we're not offering it then that then i start to feel uncomfortable about that yeah so what do you think the limits should be for a general practitioner doing orthopedics in a non-specialty environment 
I mean, I, I'm I'm certainly not going to put limits on anyone. I think that's they at least should be self-imposed. I think you just need to go about it in a very wise and cautious manner. I mean, there are still certain fractures if they are um, really close to say a growth plate or a joint, and I feel like it needs a hybrid fixator, which would be an external fixator that has um, like a ring. At the bottom, you know, the implants are actually external to the body, Mm -hmm. um, has a ring and then has, um, you know, a bar going up that leg. Those are, those can take a significant amount of time. And with, we don't have fluoroscopy at this time, although we're looking into that. (laughs) You know, I mean, I refer fractures some, not very often, thankfully, but if they're very, very specific, and I know that it's going to take me hours and hours and a lot of frustration, then, then we even refer some things. So I think there's no shame in in referring. Um, and so the limits, I would say, are just really like, what is your knowledge base? What equipment do you have? What personnel do you have? Because it takes our ladies who know what they're doing. I mean, we've got a routine. It can take them easily an hour to get a dog on the table um, from pre-medding, shaving, doing either nerve blocks or epidural, depending on where the fracture is. Um, So I I guess I would say that's another thing. What medications do you have in the hospital? Can you provide appropriate um, analgesia for these for these patients. Um, and Great point. yeah, and, and supportive care, um, that bilateral fracture I mentioned earlier, you know, couldn't walk because he was so, so swollen from, um, all of the trauma, all of the pelvic fractures that he had. And then he had this femur fracture as well. And so just the supportive care for these patients post-operatively, can you get a UCATH? Do you have an appropriate system to have urinary catheterization in patients that can't ambulate because of polytrauma? So so all of those things, I mean, they're just really intense cases. And so that's why I say start simple and kind of I, I think that would um, be a good way to know your limitations and learn what instruments do I need? What um, would it be helpful if someone scrubbed in? Was this patient comfortable? You know, all those all those different things. And then again, can you charge? appropriately for the amount of time um, and the inventory and the equipment investment that it's that it's going to take. We didn't really talk about this ahead of time, but Dr. Plunkett, would you say it's accurate that um, fracture cases really need mu agonists, opioids? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Buprenorphine won't cut it. Butorphanol won't cut it, right? No, I mean, I, I think... In in a pinch, you could do a CRI of either of those, adding some dextomator, maybe lidocaine, ketamine, you know, not necessarily all four, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, ideally, you know, the front legs, if it's below the elbow, they get an axillary nerve block. In the back legs, we usually do epidurals or femoral sciatic block. And then usually a fentanyl CRI, depending some of them will will just get hydromorphone. I shouldn't say just, but get hydromorphone. Yes, I think you need a pure mu for sure. So, Dr. Plunkett, what is the scariest thing that you've seen as a surgeon? The first scary, scariest thing I saw was um, back when I was training and I was scrubbed into to this abdominal case. And I, I'm presuming 
it was for an extrahepatic portosystemic shunt, just looking back on what happened, but I don't, I don't actually remember what it was. I remember there were lap pads, um, laparotomy pads covering the intestines and everything to keep them, I hesitate to use the word moist, but um, (laughs) I hate that word. Guys, those are, lap pads are basically like a giant gauze with a string on it so you don't lose it. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of the intestines were covered with this lap pad and, um, the surgeon and, and this was a surgeon tied off the portal vein. And then I think we were getting ready to lavage the abdomen or something. We removed the lap pads and the intestines were blue. And that's how we knew, knew that the surgeon knew that it was, um, the portal vein that the surgeon had tied off. So that was... I th- I think when it really hit me, like, we can do a lot of damage here if we don't yep. pay attention and know what's going on. And that's someone at the highest possible trained level. So if people at the highest possible trained level can make mistakes, I mean, it's possible for anybody. Oh, yeah. And it <laughs> is there anything more humbling than veterinary medicine? I mean, <laughs> you- <laughs> I've not uh, experienced it if there is. I mean, I rarely feel like the queen of the world you know it's like there's always something where i could have done better whether it's an interaction with a client usually it's something surgical you know there's um i'm sure i didn't realize what i was getting into oh got into veterinary medicine Mm -hmm. but um i mean it's kind of all consuming you know a bit of a tangent but it's you can't leave it at work Mm -mm. you know you you take everything home with you you can try not to, but it's it's hard. So that that was probably the first scary thing I saw. So, um, I mean, can you untie off a portal vein? You know, it's a good question, and I was I was thinking, wondering that because um, one time here's a scary thing I did. Okay, and certainly not to say that I haven't done scary <laughs> oh, things, girl. I have. Yeah, I mean, I have. Um, everybody has. Yeah, hey, if you are out there and you think that you've never made a mistake, <laughs> you you in denial. Like you're wrong, or you've been practicing a week. Maybe you haven't done one yet, but like it's gone. You have, you have. You might just it's not coming. know, but you have. Yeah, yeah. This is when I was in mobile practice, and this practice had asked me to come and do a, a PDA repair on this dog, and it was it was a rescue dog. Just say real quick, what is a PDA? Yeah, so patent ductus arteriosus. So it's a blood vessel that should have closed down after birth, but remained open. Scary <laughs> chest surgery. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, right. So it's intrathoracic. And um, it was a rescue dog. So um, that's why I was doing it in mobile. I wouldn't have normally done that. Um, and I'm pretty sure it had had an echo because that was, yes, it had had an echo um, because some dogs with PDAs can have other congenital vascular abnormalities that would change the approach. So we get in there and find the PDA and I tie it off mm-hmm. and the dog's heart stops. And I was like, hmm. So it's not unusual for them to have a reflex bradycardia, but death is not often expected. So I was like, okay. So I took the, fortunately I could get, I usually just do one tie and kind of tie it off and see mm-hmm. what happens. Um, of course, these vessels are can be, fragile i have not seen but i have heard of these vessels rupturing during dissection you have to dissect around this vessel and so thankfully that didn't happen so i took the ligature off 
and um, everything went back to normal. And I was like, hmm, maybe my dissection wasn't close enough. Maybe I wrapped up something and I didn't know about it. So um, I did a little bit more dissection and tried it again. And same thing happened. The heart rate, like, plummeted. And the heart, like, I'm watching the heart, right? It's beating right here. And it's like, I think I'm gonna give up. No. And I was like, no, 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 no. So he took the ligature off again. And um, and we aborted that yep. mission. So that is an artery. So the walls are much thicker. It's much more, I don't want to say you, you can be rougher with it, but you it would be less likely to tear than, say, the portal vein, which has paper-thin walls. Um, and, and I think the surgeon had already, like, completely ligated it. Like, it wasn't a throw. Hmm. It was probably, like, four throws, you know, or six yeah. throws. And, and so that... And I don't know what the t- what time had passed from when we ligated it to when we removed those lap pads and saw yeah. that the intestines were really unhappy was that um a um a bad outcome it was yeah that's very upsetting i'm sorry it was really it was really sad yeah man i've seen a couple of scary things but like nothing like um (laughs) working in around the heart (laughs) the only thing okay (laughs) so uh again back in my cowboy surgery days um we had a cat come in with a diaphragmatic hernia and they uh, could not afford, again, to because at that time it was Auburn, you know, four-hour drive, that kind of thing, major dollars, or mm-hmm. Dr. Grider <laughs> on her lunch break trying to fix it <laughs> real quick. So that's, wow. so that's what the owner went with, was Dr. Grider on her lunch break trying to fix it. We didn't have a ventilator, so the technician just had to manually ventilate the cat the whole time. <laughs> Been there, done that. And when we got in there... It was not just a small diaphragmatic hernia. This hernia, so the diaphragm is the muscle that separates the chest from the abdomen, and it's instrumental in being able to breathe. So I get into the abdomen, I pull all of the organs out of the chest, and I'm looking, and the the hernia, (laughs) it's from basically um, the last rib on the left side all the way around to the last rib on the right side. like. Mm-hmm. A com- like a I think what do you call that a circumferential diaphragmatic hernia? Yeah, yeah. And I of course stopped breathing <laughs> momentarily myself. Right, I was like, Arr! and um, because I've never done. Not only have I never done a diaphragmatic hernia before, I'd never like I was I'd been out maybe two months. Okay, like this was oh wow I hadn't ever done this procedure even in vet school or anything. My surgery team in vet school had done one, but I was the anesthetist who had to bag the animal the whole time. So I never even got to see anything. I only just heard. But I will say that the experience of having heard what was happening, I was like, okay, well, we just got to like dive in with both feet. So I did fix it. And that cat did do okay. <laughs> I don't know how. That's awesome. But just the, um, cause, uh, you know, when the technician would breathe, everything would move. Yeah. And so we would have to time, like, I'm going to do some throws. And when you're about to breathe, you need to tell me so I can stop. <laughs> right. So the needle doesn't go into the lung. Exactly. So it, yes. that was such a peeing my pants situation. 
<laughs> that I can't even imagine being like, let me just look at the vessels around the heart and real good. You know, like, no way. I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, thank you. That is not for me. Yeah, those, um, I feel like intrathoracic surgeries, at least for me, are, are always a little bit of, the sphincter's closed. You know, you're really. <laughs> your own sphincter. Yes, yes, you're always kind all of, of them. <laughs> that's where that's where the e comes in. All of the sphincters have because everything's it. moving. The heart's beating, the lungs like the, you can't tell it to be still. Like everything's moving, so it's challenging. Oh man! But uh, Doctor Plunkett, I've seen you do some really amazing stuff. Uh, we had this one dog one time. It was uh, again. We're gonna conceal the identity of the patient, but it was. Um, an older large breed dog that had a bile obstruction and you went in and did uh, surgery, removed the gallbladder and flushed the bile duct and I actually scrubbed in on that with you. Um, and that mm -hmm. dog did, that dog recovered and did great until it died of old age. Okay. And uh, that was one of the craziest things too, because like I'm like trying to retract for you and like holding everything out of the way and the gallbladder. Of course it was a deep chested. Oh uh, yeah like hound type breed and so you were like all the way up in there and it was like it was crazy trying to get that gallbladder i was crazy did a bunch of um like inspiseta bile come out when we flushed the bile duct oh girl yeah it's so gratifying it was yeah. it's like popping a zit and all this stuff yeah comes i remember out. working so with great. her once on a dog that had a it was a, a mass on the thyroid oh yeah. totally yeah and that thing yeah, yeah because it had invaded the the jugular the jugular yeah oh my god when everything was out and i was looking at it, it's like that thing's got lots of fingers everywhere Ugh. yeah mm -hmm. that was a cool i i specifically remember that one that was a cool case did you um now were you able to preserve the jugular vein or did you have to tie it off i'm pretty sure we tied yeah. it off yeah yeah I'd, <laughs> i mean you don't really need to preserve it. You know? <laughs> i wouldn't tie off both of them no. i mean although you can <laughs> You, you can. Their head gets really you big. You can do that. Um, so oh, no. the reason yes. I know <laughs> my um, more scary stories. This is a, <laughs> this is like a, a campfire story. Okay, from the olden days. So um, my uh, I'm divorced, but my father in law, uh, doc, the other Doctor Grider, lives in South Alabama. He's a veterinarian. And um, before we had imidacide, they would go in with a hook. And fish out heartworms straight out of the... What? Oh, yeah, girl. They would go in through the jugular vein and go down with, like, a wire thing and grab the heartworms, physically pull them out. They, like, a... I mean, no offense. A general practitioner? Sure. I mean, obviously, there's no fluoroscopy, but they're just... Man, they did whatever the hell they wanted. <laughs> Look, in the olden days... <laughs> I have heard some stories where I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, but then, but the, yeah, yeah. look, the, the experience mm -hmm. of veterinary medicine was different then. Yeah. The client's expectations, vastly different. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the gosh, place of so, the dog in the household, yeah. vastly different, you know? So, <laughs> but the thing that's frustrating is that those dogs probably did fine. Oh, yeah. 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 It's it, it never, it never fails. If it's some sort of like, <laughs> Yard dog, like some sort of tough thing. Everybody's like, well, but doc, we know you're going to do your best, but we got $30, yeah. you know, or something like that. Those always live. If they're like, this is a $1,000 insured animal from the yeah. special island home or something like that, it's going to die <laughs> walking into the bill. It's going to trip and fall and die in the lobby. 
And you're going to get sued. Correct. Yes. And that's the expectations. Uh-huh. I feel like if they, the higher their <laughs> expectations are, if they're unreasonable, the, everything's going to go wrong. Yes, accurate. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's just so true. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. So anyway, they used to go in and do that, okay? And then he had told me one time, like just in passing, when I used to go down there and hang out with him in South Alabama, that he'd had a couple dogs where they he'd treat them for heartworms. He'd pull the heartworms out or whatever. And then a couple years later, they get heartworms oh, again. So then they, they've they tied off the one jugular vein. So now we got to go in on the other side, pull them out and tie off that one. And then he was he told them, like, you better give us wow. flare of it because we don't have any <laughs> yeah, more jugular veins or whatever. Wow. <laughs> we should have him on the podcast. He has some crazy stories. Oh, I can't imagine. But anyway, so, uh, okay, how that's relevant. So years later, again, in my cowboy days, right? Uh, I was working at uh, my first job and we had this dog come in and it was a large breed dog that had been attacked by a housemate and the jugular had been transected oh, yeah. during that attack and the dog was glunk, 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 like just bleeding just everywhere, everywhere. And I was doing something else and I came into the back and my boss at the time turned around and looked to me. It's the only time I've ever seen him completely pale like just white and he was like i think the jugular is transected and like the dog's like glunk glunk and we're like what the so he was like i don't know what to do and i was like my father-in-law told me that you can top the jugular vein so reach in there with some hemostats and clamp it and he was like let's try it and so like we <laughs> he reached in there with the hemostat and clamped it it just i mean blind because it's just blood yeah. blood is all you probably can see. got the carotid but too somehow i mean he he just like he rang it somehow and the bleeding stopped and we're like okay and so then we're getting the dog prepped you know to go to surgery to like tie it off but we had to do something or else the dog was going to bleed out before we could get it into the operating room so anyway <laughs> Um, so you can tie off the jugular yeah, vein because yeah. we tied off that one and uh, it went great. <laughs> that dog, uh, that dog did a, did great. It lived. I feel like that would be like the cowboy veterinary medicine sounds much more my style. Right. Like, you, just because the expectations, you know, I mean, we have, we have some yeah. phenomenal clients and then we have some that can be challenging because of, mm-hmm. of everything that you said. But if like the lower the expectations, the more I feel like, okay, it's going to be okay. I'm not, sometimes I'm in surgery and I'm just thinking about the owner. Like I'm so yeah. worried about what the owners, how they're going to respond. If everything's going to go right. If there's a complication, <laughs> I'm going to have to deal with this person for weeks, you know, when things, when we're trying to get something to heal or whatever. And I, <laughs> I think that's where the anxiety Comes from. Whereas if you're doing cowboy surgery and people are like, I I know you're going to do your best and they trust you, then I'm like, (laughs) I I feel empowered by that. (laughs) Had I known the stress. Introvert and veterinary medicine somehow often go together, but they shouldn't. It doesn't, they shouldn't. It doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah, it's tough. Well, I mean, I think it's tough because introverts are naturally drawn to animals. Yeah. Along those lines, um, I will just throw in that there is a podcast called Therapist Uncensored, and they have a whole multiple episode uh, series about dealing with difficult personalities. Mm. Now, this is from the 
a standpoint of dealing with them as a therapist, but I don't think it's that different. Oh, gosh. Like, I think it would be really helpful for veterinary professionals to listen to these to kind of take some tips away for how to deal with them from our end. Obviously, we're not going to therapize the difficult client <laughs> with this this podcast is really for therapists like about other therapists kind of a thing but but anyway i found it to be really helpful and what's it called it's called uh therapist <laughs> uncensored it sounds entertaining if nothing else it is it's a good it's a good podcast yeah cool. i enjoy it <laughs> yeah there's so much psychology in veterinary medicine it's i yeah, there is. that's what they just can't prepare you for you know you just don't yeah <laughs> if only there was a dual degree in veterinary medicine and counseling, then we so would be true. all set. Yeah. And psychology. Yeah. So, Dr. Plunkett, what are some of your surgical pet peeves? I, I don't know that this is surgical so much, but it's perioperative. We'll say when when patients get mm-hmm. an injection of one NSAID and then they get put on another NSAID. Like, we're going to give you an injection of meloxicam. Here's your Remedil to go home. And I just... You know where we trained and yeah. the clinical pharmacologist that trained us. and I do. And um, even aside from that, it's just like, why? Like, <laughs> why do you potentially set the dog up for that GI ulcer? And I've when I um, did locums at Louisiana State, they saw all the time dogs that would come in with perforated GI ulcers because the dogs would get um, like Banamine, Dex-SP. Banamine? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, banamine, dex, sp, and then like carprofen. Speaking of cowboy veterinarians, <laughs> or ketophen, and like so, like some kind of old school NSAIDs and a steroid and a different NSAID to go home. And yeah. they said it happened mm. like like on a regular basis. They would see perf- perforated GI ulcers from this. Like there's there's no reason in my mind to to put the dog in that position. Right. So that that's a that's kind of a big pet peeve of mine. I, I guess the other thing is, and this, wow, I've really been influenced by this clinical pharmacologist, would be <laughs> poor or unnecessary use of antibiotics. Oh, girl. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Preach. Because of course we see resistance and it's a huge problem in the human, on the human side. And they blame it on the veterinarians a lot more, the large animal veterinarians. So my husband gets a lot of rap for that. And it's, it's sometimes can be just indiscretionary and that kind of drives me insane especially of course batril because that causes multi-drug resistance so i'd be like <laughs> well there is some nasal discharge so we put it on bat- batril and i'm like no ah! why but they have a fracture now i have to treat a fracture that's going to be resistant to everything so anyway pet pet peeves i yeah i can i'm completely with you on that i um i remember this one time and again we'll be as like nondescript as possible <laughs> I had done an abdominal surgery with intestinal biopsies, and I had done intraoperative antibiotic, mm-hmm. but not postoperative <laughs> antibiotic because I think you asked me about this I, question. I called you case. at night about yeah. it. I did, <laughs> yeah, because I had made that decision based on my training. Okay, mm-hmm. and I knew that during that surgery, like there were, I don't think you can ever say there was no breach of surgical technique like i don't think you can ever be 100 percent, but i mean i felt 99.9 percent right. sure that everything yeah. with the surgery had gone great it was quick the tissue handling was gentle like everything looked good nothing in there looked terrible and i had mm-hmm. packed 
packed off, packed off, changed gloves. You know, done, I've done everything I could yeah. to maintain sterility of the abdomen, and I did not do post-operative antibiotics, mm-hmm. which was the right decision because the animal did great. But I got a lot of pressure and a scolding mm. about that from another mm-hmm. veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting at home because I really was like, no, I really think that I'm doing what's appropriate. And but then I was like worried, you know, if what if something does happen with this patient, then are they going right. to throw me under the bus for this and tell me it's my fault, even though I feel like it's not, you know. So I, I called <laughs> Dr. Plunkett at night. Like it was like after 9 p.m. And I was like, Dr. Plunkett, I don't know. And she held my hand and was like. No, that's the right thing. Like, stay tough. Everything is going to be okay. <laughs> and so I'll always like really, I always think about that. And I'm really appreciative <laughs> that you were like, it's going to be okay, baby veterinarian. Like, don't freak out. <laughs> well, it's just not. I mean, a lot of people, it's like, in a, you just give them antibiotics. And I, and I just don't think it's necessary. But in this person's rationale, the person that was giving me a lot of pressure was like, you want to prevent it from dehissing. And I was trying to explain, like, but that's not a thing. That's not a thing. I mean, I absolutely have seen patients that have dehissed, yeah. that have been on antibiotics, and you you don't know it. So we miss the signs of it. Because they, they don't have a fever. Yeah. Um, they don't have as much effusion because there aren't as many neutrophils. Yeah. Because the bacteria aren't in as high of a number. And so it it can be missed for days, and that can be the difference between life and death, for sure. If the intestines are really angry, so let's say it's like, um, we're not going to say linear foreign body because those are a beast of their own, but a foreign body that really has made the intestines super angry, and you get it out, but the concern would be that there's bacterial translocation that occurred across that inflamed intestine, then some of those guys, I will... We do perioperative antibiotics, so like you said, at induction, every 90 minutes in surgery, sometimes I'll extend those post-op. I'm not worried necessarily about the incision opening up. I'm worried about bacteria going from the intestines outward into the bloodstream. So if they have a high white count, which a lot of them do anyway from having a foreign body, if they're febrile, then those are kind of some indicators like maybe they already have some bacterial translocation and we need to treat that as a systemic thing as opposed to... Bi- I mean, you did a biopsy, so no, that should heal. And if if it leaks, the antibiotics are not going to keep it from falling apart. And they also won't fix the issue. Surgery would have to happen, right? That's right. They're not going to heal um, GI contents <laughs> going into the abdomen. What are some things that general practitioners can do to make referral of surgical patients most successful? I think there's two main things. One is getting us, um, I, I hesitate to say as much information as possible because it's 2021. Sometimes we'll get records back to 2017. And usually that's not necessarily important. But details about what is going on right now. And one thing that helps us with is is when to schedule the patient. Like, can we just put them wherever we're scheduling, which may be three weeks out? Or is it urgent? Do they need to come in right now? Or is it something like sooner rather than later, but it, it's not like, oh my gosh, we have to see it right now. So information. Um, a lot of times we'll get sent radiographs and there's no information. And we're like, those are nicely positioned films. Like, what would you like me to tell you? 
So just really just information. And the second thing that I feel like our referral base is really, really good about is giving people an idea of cost. Because I would, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of veterinary medicine comes down to people's expectations and money. Yeah. And sometimes, and often those two are hand in hand. So we, I would say really rarely from a specialist standpoint, which is very different, the ER, well, those generally aren't referrals. Anyway, that's ER. But our referral base is really good about prepping people for for those that cost. And that's huge. But one way to really, really make a client angry is for them to take their dog with a broken leg, put it in a car, drive it 45 minutes or longer to a hospital, us tell them it's going to cost X amount of dollars, and then have no way to pay for that. And then they have to put their broken dog back in a car. And that is devastating to everyone. I feel like last year, it really hit me that so much is about people's expectations, whether that be prognosis, whether that be how long the patient's going to be in the hospital, whether that be if they're going to have a drain, of course, cost. I mean, when can they get updates? All everything is about people's expectations. And so a lot of that begins with with the general practitioner and their um, referral information. And so I again, I, I feel like our referral base is is really pretty good. I agree with you. Seeing patients sometimes when I've worked in emergency before, seeing patients referred over who have no idea that they're walking into like, Mm. again, four four dollar signs worth of things to be hospitalized. And then now their regular bed is closed. And so then the owner, unfortunately... Right. Oh, gosh. Just gets mad at whoever is in front of them at that time when they receive the bad news. So. Right. 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 Yeah. The ER doctors are like a punching bag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. There's a lot of reasons I couldn't do ER medicine, but that's one of them. For sure. Well, Dr. Plunkett, thank you so much for uh, yep. agreeing to hang out with us today. We've really enjoyed it. And I think uh, listening to the audio is going to be really fun <laughs> on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you for having me. I I was so flattered when you asked. Okay, well, if you have stories, questions, submissions, anything you want us to read, let us know. Send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media on uh, Facebook and Instagram, and we're at introvets. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Eep. (laughs) Bye. Bye-bye.